Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. As we discovered in series one, the 1960s signified for many a decade of revolution, a decade of hope and a decade of immense change worldwide. We must not forget, however, that it was also a time of conflict, the Cold War and racial tension. Musically, the world moved from the rock and roll sound and crooners into the British invasion, folk music and peace and love along with hippies, drugs and Woodstock. If the 60s had ended on August the 17th, 1969 instead of the 31st of December, Woodstock would be considered a fitting finale to a turbulent decade. But instead, just a few months later, the 60s dream became its nightmare at another free concert, this time headlined by the Rolling Stones. With support from Santana, Jefferson Airplane and a host of other acts, events would unfold that led to the ugliest scenes in the history of rock music, culminating in the deaths of four people. The 60s would end, not so much swinging, but reeling towards one of the darkest of days in the world of entertainment in 1969, leaving a black shadow over the decade. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the Rolling Stones at Altamont. I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the fence, they think it's all over. It is now. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for
In December 1970, a movie was released directed by the famous Maisel's Brothers. Renowned for their expertise at documentary making, the brothers have previously recorded documentaries featuring Marlon Brando, Orson Welles and Truman Capote, as well as their legendary footage of the Monterey Festival. In early 1969, Albert and David Maisels were contacted by the Rolling Stones to document their return to live touring. The Stones wanted a record of their return after three years, a period of time that had seen so much change in the American music scene and the way that concerts and touring were presented. What nobody realised was that they would be recording on the big screen some of the ugliest scenes at any live event, culminating in the murder on screen of one of the concert goers. It's hard to imagine now, but back in 1969, the greatest rock and roll band in the world was Skint. The Rolling Stones, despite leading lavish, stylish and at the same time immorally self-indulgent lives, practically didn't have a pot to piss in. Alan Klein had signed the Stones in 1966 with promises of making them the richest music artists the world had ever seen. And sure enough, over the next three years, the band made $17 million or so. But being a rock star is an expensive business and the couple of million that actually made its way to the band, split five ways, was soon gone. Klein was alright though. His company channelled all the Stones' income, leaving him free to freeze any monies as he so wished. The Rolling Stones had not toured the USA since 1966. The previous three years had seen vast changes to the rock world. The British invasion was a distant memory, and now the new sound was that of psychedelic rock. The champions of this sound were West Coast bands such as the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, and the British groups were starting to imitate what they were hearing from across the Atlantic. There were also other aspects to this new scene, including free concerts. Free concerts were nothing new in San Francisco. They were part and parcel since the beginning, with regular performances by the top San Francisco bands in Golden Gate Park and the Panhandle. Here, local rock bands, along with acts such as The Dead, Big Brother of the Holding Company and Jimi Hendrix, would belt out their latest songs to audiences that would listen attentively and dance whilst high on pot or LSD. Word got back to England, and in June 1968, the first large free concert in Hyde Park was held. Billed as the Midsummer High Weekend, it featured Pink Floyd, Jeffro Tull, Roy Harper and Tyrannosaurus Rex. This was followed by the famous free concert given by supergroup Blind Faith, which proved to be a landmark London cultural occasion, attended by Donovan, the odd Beatle or two, as well as Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful. Mick was more than impressed, and as the gig attracted a crowd of over 100,000 people, who to the surprise of the police and the authorities present, did little more than just peacefully listen to the music of Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker, Stevie Winwood and Rick Gretsch. Soon after, Mick got the Stones office to see about staging another free concert in the park the following month. The concert originally was to be used as an introduction to the world to their new song Honky Tonk Women, 
and to Mick Taylor, the guitarist who had replaced the band's founding member, Brian Jones. Tragically, two days before the concert, Jones was found drowned in his swimming pool in his English countryside estate. does not sleep. He has awakened from the dreams of life. It's we that are lost in stormy visions and keep with phantoms an unprofitable strife. And in a mad trance we strike with a spirit's knife, invulnerable nothing. We decay like corpses in the charnel. Fear and grief convulse us and consume us day by day and cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clay. The one remains, the many change and pass. Heaven's light forever shines, earth's shadows fly. Life, like a dome of many-coloured glass, stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples it to fragments. Die, and if thou wouldst be with that, which thou dost seek, follow, where all is fled. Dressed in a white tunic, Mick read a poem by Shelley, and thousands of white butterflies were released from boxes, the intention being that they should flutter gracefully over the crowd and into the London sky. Instead, it became apparent that most of them had suffocated, and those that were left just barely managed to fly a few feet above the heads of the band before plummeting to their death on stage, their delicate carcasses littering the floor around their feet. The Stones had not performed in public for two years and put on a performance that is considered by many the worst show in their history. It was sloppy, unrehearsed and chaotic with out-of-tune instruments. Not that it bothered the audience, they loved it. There were no arrests, and the crowd stayed behind and tidied up after themselves. How very British. One of the most significant things about this concert, which will prove to be incredibly relevant to the rest of the story, was the presence of Hell's Angels. Or at least the British biking equivalent. British promoters had heard that Hell's Angels were used at the West Coast Free Concerts as security guards, so the British bikers were invited to act in a similar capacity. The bikers likened themselves to their American beer-guzzling, head-breaking counterparts, but in reality, nothing was further from the truth. The bikers spent the entirety of the concert not only wearing their Nazi helmets and sporting swastikas, but just hanging around the stage drinking cups of tea. Policing was left to the police. Following the Hyde Park gig and buoyant after their appearance in London, the Stones envisioned further free concerts at the Taj Mahal or even Stonehenge. But plans are underway for the upcoming American tour and the decision was made to host a free gig at somewhere like Golden Gate Park. 
All would be arranged with the correct permits in place and the day would be billed as a concert headlined by the Grateful Dead or Jefferson Airplane. Stones would then emerge as the final surprise act unannounced to anyone. In 1966, the centre of the cultural universe was swinging London. There's no doubt that music, fashion and art would find its epicentre here and influence and inspire people the world over. But by 1969, however, music wasn't so much swinging, it was rocking, fuelled by LSD and marijuana with its capital city of San Francisco. The Summer of Love in 1967, and in particular the Monterey Festival, brought the world's attention to the Grateful Dead and Big Brother and the Holding Company, with of course Janis Joplin on lead vocals. Underground rock began its ascendance with artists such as Jimi Hendrix, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Moby Grape and the Steve Miller Blues Band. San Francisco became established as the undisputed home for rock counterculture in America and the world. Woodstock seized the dreams and imaginings of America's youth and shocked the mainstream media with three days of peace, love and music. And as mentioned at the top of the show, it should have provided a fitting end to a decade that had witnessed so much turmoil. Woodstock took place in mid-August 1969. The Stones arrived in Los Angeles just eight weeks later in October. The month-long tour was due to start on November the 7th with sold-out gigs in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, as well as Alabama and West Palm Beach, Florida. Getting comfortable now, starting to fit just right. Sit there, look at all those people around you, get acquainted. Have a smoke. Uh, to get back to the, uh, the warning that I've received, you may take it with how many, however many grains of salt you wish, that the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest, but uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay? Elliot from Harvard. The hitchhikers you need, the hitchhikers you picked up need the pills from your car. Please go to the information station right away. Louis Pitnick. Louis Pitnick, your brother is in the Paulsburg police station. The voice of Chipmunk heard here warning the Woodstock crowd about some of the dangerous drugs that were floating about during the concert. He was brought on board by Mick Jagger to handle the tour production. 
Monk operated the lights at Fillmore East and had worked with every rock band worth knowing on the road. The month-long tour was set to start on November the 7th. For the first time on a tour, the Rolling Stones will be using their own sound system and perform on a stage that they themselves had designed. After all, Mick Jagger needed room to move, gyrate and pout in front of his adoring fans. And so, on Saturday, October the 17th, 1969, the Rolling Stones, their wives, girlfriends and entourage, including Graham Parsons of the Flying Burrito Brothers, arrived in Hollywood. Two days later, they faced the press at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, where questions were raised about the high prices being demanded by the Stones for their concert tickets. And later, during the press conference, it was actually revealed that the Stones were charging twice as much than local bands, or even Blind Faith who were due to appear very soon. Mick left the press conference angry that he'd been hauled over the coals, and the last thing he wanted was for the band to be seen as that to make some quick and easy cash. That night the band saw their hero Chuck Berry performing concert, as well as a gig by the Flying Burrito Brothers, before moving on over the next few days to finish their long-awaited album. They had three tracks left to complete and had been working on different versions of Midnight Rambler since the Beggar's Banquet sessions. Also waiting to be completed, as you can't always get what you want. Also finished at this time was the final album version of Gimme Shelter, featuring the unique talents of Mary Clayton. Everyone present that night agreed that it was a chilling performance. The album, ready to be mixed, would be entitled Let It Bleed and was due for release on the 28th of November. The following night, the Stones celebrated by going to see another of their greatest influences, Little Richard, live at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Movies about rock concerts were nothing new. Mick was certainly aware that the movie from Woodstock was due to be released by Warner Brothers very soon. Mick was keen to document their tour on celluloid and if possible get it released before the Woodstock film came out. D.A. Pennebaker, famed filmmaker responsible for Monterey Pop and for the classic Don't Look Back documentary featuring Bob Dylan, was initially considered. But he backed out, valuing his artistic instincts over the commercial success of the project. Axel Wexler was also approached with a suggestion that there may be a free concert to round off the tour. He also passed on the idea, but suggested filmmakers Albert and David Mazels. Tour rehearsals continued into November. 
but there was still no concrete plan for the much debated free concert. And on the 7th of November 1969, the band took to the stage for the first date of the American tour. A modest gig held at the Colorado State University's Moby Gym. With the new stage set up, their own lighting and set, the audience consisted of a complete cross-section of every conceivable music fan imaginable. There were hippies, students, co-eds and jocks mingling together. Bill Wyman will remark later that for the first time the band could actually see the faces of the crowd. For the first time the audience was not predominantly screaming girls, the crowd were listening and the crowd was loving it. Rock audiences in America were now used to two hour sets by bands such as Led Zeppelin, not the 25 minute set that the Stones had previously played. And let's face it, back then nobody was actually listening. This was good, but the real test would be the following night when the Stones would be expected to play two gigs at the Forum in Los Angeles. The box office receipts of $260,000, which is the equivalent of $1.7 million in today's money, broke the record previously achieved by the Beatles for the highest grossing music concert. At this point in rock history, bands were not known to travel with their own sound systems, lighting rigs and staging. Unprepared for the venue without an accurate seating map, the positions of the speakers blocked the view of at least 200 of the members of the audience. And incredibly, the National Hockey League had double booked a game at the venue that evening. This was quickly rescheduled to the afternoon once it had been noticed, and a board was placed over the ice before the Stones audience were allowed in. There were only eight roadies employed to set up the whole set, lighting and sound systems, and surprisingly the first show managed to get underway just one hour and 45 minutes late. Opening act Terry Reid spent most of his set singing into a dead microphone. Also on the bill were B.B. King who suffered similar sound problems, and by the time the third act Ike and Tina Turner took to the stage, the problems appeared to have been resolved. Eventually, just after 11 o'clock the Stones took to the stage. The second show started three hours later than planned with the Stones hitting the stage at four in the morning. Recording the event were Albert and David Mazels. With a set garnered mainly from Beggar's Banquet, the Stones also included Midnight Rambler and Live With Me from the upcoming Let It Bleed album. The set lasted a blistering 65 minutes Sorry you had to wait. before being wound down with performances of Satisfaction, Honky Tonk Women and Street Fighting Man. Any doubts that the addition of Mick Taylor to the lineup would not work were soon dispelled. The Stones had been reborn.
kindly. I think I bust a button on my trousers, hope they don't fall down. Start jumping around, man. I have to do it up again. <laughs> you don't want my trousers to fall down now, do you? tour continued on to Oakland before returning to Hollywood for a short break from the touring schedule. It was during this time that further conversations were held as to how and when the Stones could perform their free concert. Again, there was talk of the band being presented as special guests on a bill featuring the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane at the end of the tour. The plan suggested that the Stones' appearance on the bill would only be announced 24 hours ahead of showtime with the Hells Angels acting as a kind of guard of honour to lead them through the crowd. It soon became apparent that the Angels were part of a package that was included with the dead and Jefferson airplane by the hippies that were organising the whole thing. Arrangements were made which envisioned the Hells Angels to act not as security, for that was believed it could be handled by the Stone's own security team, but as something a little more fluid. The organisers mistakenly took the LA Angels to be more akin to their tea-drinking, moped-riding British counterparts who'd been present at the Hyde Park concert. It was expected that the Angels would be responsible for helping people, giving out directions, keeping the crowd out of the backstage area, that sort of thing. And in perhaps one of the most famous financial transactions in rock history, the Hells Angels were hired in return for $500 for beer. Everybody seems to be ready. Are you ready? For the first time in three years, the greatest rock and roll band in the world, the Rolling Stones! The Rolling Stones! We're going to have a look at you. We're going to see how beautiful you are. The second leg of the US tour began in New York on Sunday, November 23rd, 1969. There was no doubt now word had spread and the Rolling Stones were officially the hottest rock band in the world. This part of the tour would be crowned with three sold-out shows at Madison Square Garden watched by people such as Leonard Cohen, Paul Simon, Woody Allen and Andy Warhol. Welcome to the breakfast show.
Back in San Francisco, things were not going so smoothly. The park's commissioners were getting cold feet about hosting an event on a scale that had not been seen previously and decided that they wanted a vote from the full board. The Stones would have to go directly to the mayor for approval. Mayor Joe Aliotto made no secret of the fact that he simply didn't like hippies. His answer to the growing problems was to simply increase the police presence, which in turn just led to violent confrontations. The entire plan quickly began to disintegrate. There was no way that the Stones would be permitted to hold their free concert in Golden Gate Park. Ironically, just as things were collapsing, news of the free concert first broke that Friday in the Los Angeles Free Press under the headline Come Celebrate. Rumour slowly became reality as more details were revealed in the San Francisco Chronicle three days later. Both reports stated that the gig would be held in Golden Gate Park on the 6th or the 7th of December. As it stood, the Stones actually had no idea where it was to take place as the park was no longer an option. In a press conference in New York on Friday the 28th of November, Mick Jagger announced to the newsmen and women gathered there that a free concert will be held in San Francisco on December the 6th. Question here on the right, Mick. Uh, I read in one of the papers that you've been giving a free concert in San Francisco. Uh, oh, yes, we are doing a free concert in San Francisco when? on December 6th. And uh, uh, the location is not Golden Gate Park, unfortunately, but it's somewhere adjacent to it, which is a bit larger. New York rocked to the now seemingly unstoppable force that was the Rolling Stones, ably supported by Ike and Tina Turner and a special guest appearance by Janis Joplin. Then on to the Palm Beach Pop Festival in Florida, which also include Janis Joplin, Sly and the Family Stone, Jefferson Airplane and Iron Butterfly. In what was becoming a common occurrence on this tour, the band were held up yet again, this time at the airport, due first of all to snow, and then the arrival of Air Force One. And by the time they arrived, billed as the closing act on the Sunday night, the temperatures at Palm Beach had dropped to 40 degrees. 
The original crowd of 40,000 had by now dwindled significantly, and with the approval of the festival's producers, they started to tear down the wooden bleachers at the Speedway venue and burn them to keep warm. The Stones finally arrived at four in the morning and played to a much smaller crowd, a lot of which had to be woken up. And so, with the free concert potentially only six days away, Sam Cutler, Chip Monk and Joe Bergman set off to California to hastily try and pull something together. Primarily, a venue. The Stones, meanwhile, whose visas only limited them to live performances, were keen to keep churning out new material. And so, off the books and without manager Alan Klein's knowledge, the band headed to Muscle Shoals, the remote studio in the Tennessee River Valley. Muscle Shoals had to all extents and purposes been adopted by Atlantic Records, and it was here that Percy Sledge recorded When a Man Loves a Woman, Wilson Pickett had laid down Mustang Sally, and Aretha Franklin recorded her debut, I Never Loved a Man. It was during these sessions here over the next couple of days that the band finished writing and recording Brown Sugar and Wild Horses, along with a cover of Mississippi Fred McDowell Delta Blues' You've Got To Move. Songs that would build off the framework of Let It Bleed and epitomise the band's new musical pathway and growing confidence that just seemed to get stronger and stronger since their arrival in the States. Time was ticking by and still no venue had been secured for the highly anticipated free concert. The entire thing was dangerously close to collapsing for not only was there no venue, but no one seemed to be taking charge. Celebrated San Francisco attorney Melvin Belly was approached. Famous for representing Jack Ruby, the killer of Lee Harvey Oswald, he was a loud, flamboyant character. Ultimately, Belly contributed little apart from gusto and attitude, but it was hoped his local connections would prove useful. Scouts were sent out to various locations, including Sears Point Raceway. Sitting at the intersection of two major highways, there was space for 100,000 cars, water, electricity, toilets, concession stands, and importantly, security was in place and police support close by. It was perfect. It was rejected, however, by Sam Cutler on the grounds that he found it aesthetically displeasing. Many think this decision was based on how the venue would look when filmed by the Maisels brothers. So Attorney Belly found somewhere else. But this was completely unfit for purpose no more than a derelict orchard with no access roads. The attorney Belly slowly began to take control, pushing Cutler further back in the decision-making process. 
the owner of Sears Point, Craig Murray, offered the site for free on the condition that insurance was obtained, all the correct permits sorted and any expenses were covered. He also laid down a proviso that any profits from the potential movie or recordings be sent to a Vietnamese orphans fund. One hundred off-duty police officers were promised as security, and with only four days to go and the possibility of over 200,000 people attending, any deal at this point was looking good. So good in fact that things quickly began to move. Workers were sent in on what was described by Rock Scully as a three-day blitz. Sound systems were prepared, phone lines installed and scaffolding delivered for the lighting towers. Bulldozers were even brought in to create a raised area for the stage. The circus had truly come to town. Word was broadcast by local radio stations that the event was actually happening and things were looking good. Not so much from the point of view of the Hells Angels though. Noted angel Terry the Tramp made it clear that by moving the concert out of San Francisco there'd be problems. If the gig were to be held in San Francisco as originally planned, the local chapter would be in charge. After all, they'd had a long-standing trouble-free agreement with the Grateful Dead and the other hippie bands for a long, long time now. San Francisco chapter was viewed as one of the more, let's say, civilised chapters. If the concert went ahead at Sears Point in Sonoma, there would be no one in charge and it would effectively be a free-for-all. Yet, still more and more people arrived. Although they would not be officially allowed entry until 7am on the Saturday, the morning of the concert, hippies and concert goers were arriving in their hundreds. Sonoma had never seen anything like this before. It was just a quiet little town. The sight of what appeared to be chaos frightened the locals. Tents, cars, lorries and vans parked randomly across the site. Hundreds of workmen, hippies and technicians milling about erecting steel towers and backstage areas. And a bulldozer carving its way through the hillside at the far end of the track creating a stage. People started to panic. There just appeared to be no leadership to the whole thing at all. Murray, the owner of the track, was furious. He got on the phone to the attorney Melvin Belly. Murray felt that the charitable aspect of the concert had been misrepresented. After all, Jagger had previously dismissed the Vietnam War as an American issue. Negotiations soon crumbled. Murray told Belly that the Stones needed to find some mutually acceptable charity and also to address some of the health and safety issues. And if that wasn't enough, it soon transpired that the Sears Point Raceway was actually owned by a company called Filmways. Filmways produced such TV hits as the Beverly Hillbillies and when they found out that the Maisels were making a movie that was going to be commercially released and this was not just a free concert, they demanded a $100,000 fee and distribution rights to the movie. 
chances of finding a more suitable venue were now slim. It offered everything required for an organised safe concert. But Jagger refused to be held over a barrel by some TV company and he refused to give in to their demands. That was it. Despite preparations being well underway, the concert would have to be moved. Discussions continued and time was drawing ever closer. Soon there would be at least 100,000 concert goers arriving at Sears Point unless something could be arranged. And then, as if sent from heaven itself, Dick Carter contacted Belly's office. Carter ran a used car lot in Haywood, a one-time minor race driver. He also owned the Altamont Speedway on the edge of southern Almeda County. It was a harsh, almost desolate location, beaten by severe winds across its scrubland setting. Carter was not doing too well from a business point of view. He'd managed to hold a couple of successful San Francisco events there and was almost bankrupt. Part of the reason it was suggested was probably down to Altamont's location. The freeway was still being built and the track was only accessible via a small four-lane highway. Luckily, Dick Carter was a desperate man. He just didn't know how desperate the Rolling Stones were at this point. Dick Carter's on the line. He's offering us a speedway at Altamont. Hello, Dick, this is Mel Belli for the Stones. If, if, if they were to perform in the speedway, is the, is the speedway uh, open so that they can be seen from the people that can't get in? Uh, yeah, and I'm sure we can work something out because I want the publicity. You want the publicity? Right. Well, you take the publicity and uh, the Rolling Stones don't want any money. It's for charity, so I'll take the money. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't I do this? Why don't I talk with these people here? And then I'll get back with you. And then uh, if we have to sign anything up and if you need any insurance, which I'm sure you will want, and all the rest of that stuff, I'll work, wo uh, work with you in the morning. Okay. All right. Well, I'll call you back later then after I talk with them, Dick. Bye. He's offered the Altamont uh, Speedway. There's not enough room and for it. And there's no time to move it. You've got to tear down a stage and a scaffolding. You've got stage scaffolding. The phones are in. The generators are there. Everything is left to go. It's anticipated that the amount of kids now traveling cross-country, you may have anywhere from five to 20,000 kids starting to arrive sometime through the day tomorrow. They're all lining up at the airports to come in from as far away as New York? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that now? Yeah. Right. Yes. yeah. You've got to be kidding. You have no idea what, what goes on here. It's, uh, it's an amazing phenomenon. It's like the lemmings of the sea. With less than 24 hours to go, contracts were signed in Belly's office and six helicopters were brought in to ferry all the gears from Sears Point over to Altamont. It was a true race against time as sound systems, lighting rigs and staging was transported to the new venue. By four in the afternoon, most of the gear had been delivered 
and six 40-foot lighting towers were constructed about 100 feet from the stage. Crews worked throughout the night as tens of thousands of people began to arrive at Altamont. And already, at this point, the first sign of trouble to come slowly became evident as the crowds came marching across the hills. A party atmosphere created from the depths of who knows where as people stumbled around in the dark stoned building campfires made from nearby fences. Drugs were handed out like candy and unlike previous events at Golden Gate Park which in comparison were civilised affairs with marijuana and LSD being the drug of choice, these guys were knocking back cheap red wine Red Mountain which cost one55 a gallon. Hippies generally don't like drinkers, often referring to them as juice heads. And as the crowds continued to arrive and the revelling carried on hours before the concert was due to begin, the red wine began to have an extra ingredient added to it as gallon after gallon became laced with LSD. And it wasn't even high quality LSD at that. At around 10 o'clock on the Friday evening, the Stones arrived at the Huntington Hotel in San Francisco. They were hoping to make a quick late night inspection of the new venue over at Altamont, but there were no helicopters available. So Mick Jagger and Keith Richards piled into a limousine along with their bodyguard Tony Funches, Keith's best new mate Graham Parsons and the writer Stanley Booth. They arrived an hour later to find they couldn't gain access through the barbed wire top gates. Around them they could see a thousand campfires flickering on the dark hillside and crowds of people moving around. The group wandered around the various campsites eventually managing to expect the stage area. Sam Cutler had been on site for hours and now he had the chance to witness himself the gathering of the uncontrolled spectres that were wandering about with their long hair off their heads on red wine and acid. Backstage, riggers and carpenters were working hard to organise the lighting, the sound system and the stage area, surrounded by various trucks, camper vans and trailers. Perhaps, just perhaps, things might just work out after all. As dawn broke, the true extent of what lay ahead became evident. Altamont was certainly no seer's point. The site was littered with oil stains, broken glass and rusted cars. The huge crowd that had been assembling throughout the night 
at least 100,000 at this point, broke through the perimeter fence and made their way towards the stage area. Those out of the crew that had managed to grab some sleep slowly woke up that morning and were greeted by what was described as a vision of hell itself. The custom-made cases designed for the tour lighting system, each costing $3,500 each, had been broken up and used for firewood. People were jostling for space, pushing and shoving. There was no feeling of this event being a love-in. There was definitely no love felt at all in the air that morning, and tempers were slowly beginning to fray. But to the casual observer, all appeared relatively well. And still the crowds continued to arrive as the sun rose higher in the sky, chasing away the damp cold air of the morning. From all directions they came swarming like ants across the surrounding hillsides. Traffic was so bad that cars were already beginning to be abandoned on the highways, their occupants electing to continue on foot. By 10am the California Highway Patrol reported a 10 mile backup of traffic in either direction. The crowd was now estimated at 200,000, and still they just kept on coming. And immediately it was clear that without the 100 security guards promised at Sears Point, and just a handful of people hired to keep order, things were looking bad. Even at this point in time, the stage was still being built. Originally, with a concert being held at Sears Point, bulldozers had created an area at the top of a bluff forming a kind of natural riser. In this way, there would be no need for a tall stage above the crowd similar to the one seen at Woodstock. And so, when the steel arrived from Sears Point, the light towers were erected first, with the crew not realising that the lights would never actually arrive, or that there would be no operators for them. With the light towers erected, there was no extra steel left to raise the height of the stage. The stage built that day was little over four feet above the ground. The stage at Woodstock stood four times higher, at least 15 feet off the ground. This had served as a defensive barrier, keeping the crowds away from the performers on the stage. A mistake that would prove disastrous as the day wore on. As a compromise, unbelievably, the decision was made to keep the crowds back with a thin piece of rope between the front row and the stage. The crowd that at this point was nearing a quarter of a million people. Since 1967 and the infamous Summer of Love, there have been a lot of changes to the drug scene. Back then, the psychedelic chemists had tried to create the purest LSD they could for the ultimate clean trip. Now, all the kids wanted to do was get high and get high quick. LSD now contained, well, who knows what, 
There were batches made that included speed, others contained strychnine. One of the common symptoms of the speed-laced LSD was that people would strip off naked, a trait that would manifest itself later in the day. The original 1967 hippies would not dream of mixing booze and LSD, but as we've discovered, LSD was being added to the gallons and gallons of cheap wine being passed around that day. It was also being added to other liquids such as orange juice, catching out unsuspecting thirsty concert goers. There was always going to be a risk of bad trips at Altamont. After all, it was 1969. It was a free concert. It was the Rolling Stones, the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane. Most festivals previously had made sure that LSD casualties would be looked after in some way. But at Altamont, the scale of the problem and its unpredictability became apparent even before the concert started. Medical care seemed to have been overlooked as the priority to find an alternate venue took precedence. Luckily, there were volunteers that day. The Red Cross had shown up with people willing to handhold the most serious of the psychedelic casualties and managed to set up a couple of relatively quiet tents to enable those affected to come down. But no one was prepared for the scale of the indiscriminate drug use that day. People arrived at the tents wound up and aggressive, a sure sign that their acid had been laced with amphetamine. And as for the booze, well, it was unheard of on this scale at what was supposed to be a peace-loving hippie festival. All of this, coupled with conditions at the venue such as the lack of food, water and bathrooms, created an atmosphere that was certainly not suited to healthy LSD intake. There were so many bad trips so early that it was described as an almost mass toxic psychosis punctuated by bad trip after bad trip. On top of this, the atmosphere was getting darker and more oppressive as the Hells Angels began to arrive, taking up their positions backstage and on the tiny stage area itself. For them, the party was just beginning, and as soon as they arrived, there was a definite air of menace. The Hells Angels held a strong perception of territory, and they could be brutal when it came to protecting what they saw as their boundaries. These men were not the bike-riding bodyguards of the hippie bands, far from it. But soon the musicians will be taken to the stage and they will be all that stood between them and the ever-growing crowd. Around the stage area and backstage it was becoming apparent, but on the whole the crowd remained blissfully ignorant. Preparations were well underway for the arrival of the opening act. Santana flew in by helicopter from San Francisco and was still riding high on their success at Woodstock earlier that summer. The group's roadies began setting up on stage trying to forget their first impressions earlier that morning of the scene that lay all around them. Altamont was basically a scrapyard of hundreds of abandoned wrecked cars stacked one on top of another. The track itself was covered with oil stains and broken glass. The roadies were astounding at the sight of several Hells Angels milling around the stage area. They seemed friendly enough, but their breakfast of handfuls of prescription drugs washed down with beer seemed a little alarming to say the least. But 
But probably the most worrying thing was the stage itself. No more than just a tiny platform, barely one step off the ground with no visible means of defence. The first death at Altamont occurred shortly before the music started. Leonard Kreischak had arrived from Buffalo, New York. It was the day before his 19th birthday, and ignoring the warning signs he climbed the perimeter fence by the California aqueduct which ran adjacent to Altamont. Sliding into the canal he was immediately pulled under by the ice cold rushing torrent and never reached the surface again. His body was found two hours later, a few miles down, stuck in a filter trap. Back on site before the music could begin, Sam Cutler all morning was desperately trying to get the crowd to move back. Those on the hillside obliged, and even after they'd shuffled back just a few feet, it didn't seem to make any difference at the front. Again and again that morning Cutler pleaded with the crowd to move back, and coupled with this he was also contended with trying to get down dozens of people from the light tower scaffolding. It was hopeless. If you ever sit on the roof of an English car, it's so well made that it doesn't dent. If you sit on the roof of a Volkswagen or an American car, you're liable to go straight through it. Um, don't ask me why. All the people, and there's about 30 of them, are sitting on the top of that Volkswagen over there. I think it's a Volkswagen. Please get off it. The owner is in, on his knees by the side of the stage in tears because he feels that it will be crunched. Could you get off it, please? Would be nice. It's not designed for people. Designed to stop rain, not boots. Could you get off it, please? Even before Cutler had gained control, he'd pretty much lost it. And so, just before 12, he stood in front of the microphone on the stage and made the following announcement. There was nothing here. We brought all this equipment from the other site where we took it all down. Very in good. 20 hours, we managed to get together what we hope will be one of the finest concerts San Francisco and the Bay region has ever had. Um, the organisers who numbered about 20 people would really like to thank the hundreds of people who came out here last night and worked all night to get this on. We're in fact, we've managed to get the whole thing together as I said in 20 hours and we're still an hour and 10 minutes earlier than we said we would start. That's at one o'clock, it's still only 10 to 12. So thanks to everybody who helped. And I'd like to point out to everybody here that this can be the greatest party of 1969 that we've had. Yeah! Let's have a party and let's have a And let's welcome the first band that's gonna produce party Santa. music for us, Santana.
and as Santana started proceedings with Saver, the sweet Latin rhythm soothing the crowd, there was a feeling that at last the ultimate aim had begun. A free concert on America's west coast. But throughout their set the stage was packed with Hell's Angels, so close to the band members that they were literally looking over their shoulders. It's at this point, if you watch the Maisel's documentary Gimme Shelter, that we're introduced to the Fat Man. A large, sweaty Latino gentleman, naked as the day that he was born. Showing no embarrassment and undoubtedly off his head on one of the bad acid batches that were being passed freely around, he was glugging red wine from a gallon jug. His interpretation of dancing was in fact just him bouncing about, trampling on those that were sitting down, crashing and bumping into others. As he bumped into people, they would push him out of their way, thereby pushing him into others who would do the same. It was a high, greasy, fat version of a pinball. A pinball who rapidly came to the attention of the angels. And as he inadvertently stumbled into their midst, he became their first target that day. Mercilessly, they began to beat him. Mainly members of the San Jose chapter, they only stopped pummeling him thanks to the intervention of Bert Kanigsen. Bert Kanigsen was known to the San Francisco Angels as he helped to run the carousel ballroom, but these men were strangers to him. As the angels eased off, the naked fat guy walked through them heading back towards the crowd, but as he passed the last Hell's Angel he paused, turned and punched him square in the face before disappearing into the mob. The angels then decided to turn on Kanigsen, and it was here that the Paul cues came out. Beating Kanigsen to the ground, the cue snapping against his curled up body, the pack eventually backed off. Kanigsen was treated backstage where it took 60 stitches to patch him up. All of this taking place as Santana valiantly attempted to continue their set. Throughout the 45 minutes Santana on stage, there was onslaught upon onslaught as the angels waged war against the audience. At least six times during that three quarters of an hour, the angels piled in with pull cues, some of them barging through across the stage and through the band itself. There was a group of angels on top of the San Francisco chapter's bus who joined in by launching full beer cans towards the stage. And by now it was evident that the low stage was going to be so much more of a problem than originally anticipated. As Santana played their final song, an audience member burst onto the stage itself, racing across through the band, hotly pursued by two Hells Angels. 
there, in front of the band, before the kid could make it to the relative safety of the crowd, they stomped him to a pulp. The atmosphere was hellish. The audience was already on edge due to the lack of provision of food and water. The red wine that was being passed around was dangerously infused with acid that potentially contained a dozen different dangerous ingredients. There were yellow pills, red pills, poppers, speed and pot and the angels as well as the audience were freely partaking in all of what was on offer. A number of the bands that day later chose not to let their performances be used in the Gimme Shelter movie. Santana was one, as were Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, as well as the Flying Burrito Brothers. So not all of these on-stage incidents were seen by the cinema going public several months later. One of the cameramen hired by the Maisels that day was a young George Lucas. Along with Walter Murch, he was hired to test out the massive 1,000mm lens. Lucas, however, was safe from all of the carnage that day as he and Murch were safely encamped on the hilltop about a mile away where the powerful lens provided the full shots of the stage and the surrounding area. The acid casualties were mounting up. The bad trip tents were gradually becoming overwhelmed, with the moaning and the screaming audience members frightened out of their wits as the dodgy LSD took hold. The medical doctors dealt with injury after injury, loads of cuts and bruises dealt out by the angels as their victims lay patiently waiting outside the rapidly filling tents, moaning quietly to themselves. Tony Funches was a towering black ex-boxer who had previously served in the Air Force. He stood head and shoulders above most people and was the long-time bodyguard of the Rolling Stones. At one point, he tried to intervene in the beating of the fat naked guy, but realised quickly it was a futile effort. He did however step in when two angels were punching the life out of each other on the stage. The man mounting easily separated the pair of them. But when one of them said something to him that was quite frankly a little racially sensitive, he hit him so hard he broke his hand on the angel's jaw. Angel number two decided to chip in, so Funches knocked him out as well, breaking his hand a second time. He retrieved a large buck hunting knife from one of the angel's belts as a former trophy and stepped over their lifeless bodies heading towards the medical tent for treatment. Seeing the chaos that was unfolding as the medical teams were struggling to cope, he wrapped up his hand himself and returned to his post on the stage. The angels quite wisely left him alone for the rest of the day.
next act on stage was Jefferson Airplane, and their set was memorably documented and included in the Maisel's documentary. The arrival of Jefferson Airplane on stage provoked some of the more memorable and shocking scenes of the day. The airplane were no strangers to live gigs, having been on the road on what for some seemed like a never-ending tour. But nothing that had gone before could possibly have prepared Grace Slick and the rest of the band for the nightmare that was about to unfold. The band were tired and exhausted after a punishing tour schedule that had included every major rock festival and the legendary sunrise set at Woodstock. stage was extremely overcrowded. The airplane were not strangers to the Hells Angels, having worked with them at many gigs previously. In fact, it was partly due to Jefferson Airplane that the Angels were there in the first place. But they had never seen them so loaded before. Bags of orange sunshine, LSD and rocks of reds combined with vast quantities of alcohol, creating a dangerous, ominous cocktail. Potentiality, as we said, are one of the finest days of this year. We could have, we can have the most gentle time, the most beautiful time, the most enjoyable time, and and I like to remind everyone, as it were, that whether we achieve a kind of a satisfaction for this day is very much dependent on the way in which we kind of interrelate with our neighbours and our friends. Um, as far as the stage is concerned, everything is an incredible hustle. Could everybody who's actually touching the front of the stage, and a large number of people are, move back a yard because you are destroying the stage monitoring system? These boxes in the front here are stage monitors and every time you shift them, they cease to work efficiently. Can people not lean on them? The second thing is that having repeatedly reminded people, there are still a hell of a lot of people on that tower which is not safe. Can the people below them please tell them to get down? Please tell them to get down. We also have too many people on the PA towers at the side of the stage. Could everyone except the operators of the PA system get off the PA towers? That all doctors in the audience, any doctors in the audience, make their way to the back of the stage. To the back of the stage, to the Red Cross Centre at the back of the stage, please. 
uh, and some of them, if you're near to it, they could go up to the orange tent up there. There's some people waving to my right, a canister. They need a doctor there. Could, could a doctor please go? I'd like to ask that before the next band, the whole of us return to a, a calmer, if you like, a less hysterical sort of atmosphere and create our own sort of atmosphere, our own feeling around this stage. I'm sure that as a musician, one requires a receptive and attentive audience. Um, let's try and give the musicians as much as we know they're going to give us. Huh? If people can please sit down, get it together. Okay, if there's no room for you sit to sit down, then I would suggest, quite honestly, you're in the wrong place. Move to the side. probably estimate the size of this crowd at about 300,000 people and uh, ever since ever since uh, it got light this morning a steady stream of people maybe three or four hundred an hour have been walking over the back hills and joining this concert by now Sam Cutler had to all extents lost control of the stage stage who should not be here consequently consequently the musicians on this stage are playing with something like 200 people breathing down their necks now can I please ask that everyone leaves the stage and as I say we'll go back to playing music and nothing else the Jefferson Airplane Jefferson Airplane Jefferson Airplane took up their position surrounded by beer-swilling Hell's Angels and as they began their first number they were accompanied by the sight of the Angels fighting with the audience directly in front of them. Vocalist Marty Bailing could only watch, slowly getting more and more angry as two of the Angels, Sweet William and Animal, throw a stoned hippie back into the crowd in front of him. Baby, 
crowd spread out as another scrap took place in front of the stage, fans being pummeled by angels. These were soon joined by some of the chapter that had positioned themselves at the back of the stage causing Grace Slick to stop singing and seek shelter behind the drum kit. Easy, easy, she mumbled as the band desperately tried to continue instrumentally. By now, Marty Balin was getting more and more wound up. He could see a group of angels laying into some poor black guy just in front of him. Not knowing what else to do, he threw his tambourine at them, screaming at them to stop. Animal, the Hell's Angel recognisable by the dead coyote he was wearing as a hat and ran up to Balin, punched him in the face and sent him crashing down in front of the drum kit. Balin, without thinking, got up, continued to point and shout at the angels and then threw himself off the stage into the middle of the fight in a crazed, desperate effort to stop it. Eventually, what music the rest of the band had been desperately trying to play crashed to a complete halt. Paul Kantner went over to the microphone. Yeah, it's all right. It's kind of weird up here. Hey, man, I'd like to mention that the Hells Angels just uh, smashed Marty Ballin in the face and knocked him out for a bit. I'd like to thank you for that. Sitting just to the side was Hell's Angel, Sweet William. Wait, you, you are, is this on? You're Came talking in. to me, I'm going to talk to I'm you. I'm not talking to you, man. I'm talking to the people that hit my lead singer you're in the head. You're talking to my people. Right. Now let me tell you what's happening. You! Man, what's you're not happening. happening. Hey! Oh! No! I'll do all that. All that. No! Oh, fuck. No, stop it! No. You know what's happening? With Potter like you. Hey. And you know, that's really stupid. Hey man, you guys do not have to stay on the stage, man. They're not gonna hassle us, really. They're not really that. It's you really don't not worth it. With anybody in particular, you gotta keep your bodies off each other unless you intend love. People get weird, and you need people like the angels to keep people in line, but the angels also, you know, you don't bust people in the head for nothing. So both sides are uh, fucking up temporarily. Let's not keep fucking up. Grace Slick knew that she was fighting a losing battle here. And while all this was going on, the unconscious body of Marty Balin was dragged on stage and then back into one of the equipment trucks at the rear. 
Eventually, Animal was told by the other angels that laying out members of the band just wasn't cool and he went backstage to apologise. Animal, complete with his dead coyote headdress, stumbled his way through a half-arsed apology, still probably half-juiced from the booze and the drugs. You can't just say fuck you to an angel, he concluded. Balin, three quarters the size of Animal, stood up still dazed and faced him. Oh yeah, he replied, fuck you. Crack, Balin went down for a second time as Animal once again smashed him in the face. Shocked by what he saw, Rex Jackson piled in. Rex was a member of the Grateful Dead's road crew, a motorcyclist who'd ridden with Angels on numerous occasions. He was the toughest guy on the Dead crew but was soon knocked out by Animal. And so, what could have been seen as the last line of defence for the bands there that day also lay unconscious face down in the dirt. The stage belonged to the Hell's Angels. Marty Balin eventually made it back to join his fellow band members for the final number in their set, Volunteers, before being swiftly hustled off the site by one of the waiting helicopters. Next on the lineup that afternoon, Graham Parsons band the Flying Burrito Brothers. Watching on stage was Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Puppers. When she'd first arrived earlier that day, she'd unwittingly dropped a dose of acid after sipping someone's apple juice. Still trying to come down from the trip, she stood on the stage watching Graham and the rest of the brothers perform their set. Hell's Angel grabbed her by the arm and attempted to throw her off the stage. Breaking free, she screamed at the Hell's Angel to leave her alone and that Graham Parsons was her boyfriend. She also threatened that the band would stop playing if he didn't fucking disappear. You got balls, little lady, the Hell's Angel chuckled and wandered off back to his mates. For a short while, the Flying Burrito Brothers seemed to instil a sort of calm on the crowd and the Hells Angels alike, as the beatings appeared to stop. <music> Meanwhile, towards the back of the venue, on the far reaches of the hill, things had been a little calmer. From here, the sound was not as clear and all the trouble in front of the stage was not so visible. Here, people were unaware of the dramas during the Jefferson Airplane set. It was here that a makeshift Bad Trips pavilion had been set up by the Ant Farm, the avant-garde group based in San Francisco who specialised in architecture, graphic arts and environmental design. Here, far away from the stage area, within a giant inflatable bubble, frightened concert goers took refuge from their anxiety and paranoia. But those at the front, those within the first two to three hundred feet of the stage, were unable to escape the paranoia that was brought on by the cheap wine and the bad acid. The most intense fans had pushed their way to the front, compacting the crowd, unable to move. The Angels did what they were supposedly asked to do and defended the stage. This in turn led to some in the farther reaches of the crowd, the would-be tough guys, to make their way forward specifically to take on the Angels. The Angels, of course, were severely outnumbered, and in a case of flight or fight, well, they only knew how to fight. 
If truth be told, the audience that day was scared and on drugs, as were the Hells Angels themselves. There was no rationality to the entire situation. Part of the audience was almost uncontrollable. Every couple of minutes one would try and make their way onto the stage before being beaten or thrown back. Still, people were climbing the flimsy lighting towers. And as the day wore on, the medical tents were filled with more and more casualties, blood-soaked victims of the Hells Angels, as well as those psychologically terrified by the combination of the violence and the drugs. Even the doctors were fighting amongst themselves, it was just that crazy. The backstage area was like the aftermath of a bloody battlefield. In order to try and contain some of the more unruly audience members, the Hells Angels had sectioned off an area to be used as a kind of holding pen. Meanwhile, the Flying Burrito brothers had found the naked fat guy and managed to keep him hidden for a while in their trailer. Before long, the Angels found him however, and without anaesthetic but with the aid of pull cues, they removed his teeth. He continued to wander around, face and chest covered in blood, still butt naked. Similarly, there was a naked woman who had been walking about since the early hours, hugging people. She too, by now, had been beaten. All this time, only one member of the Rolling Stones was present. Keith Richards had stayed on site since the night before. The rest of the band arrived by helicopter, landing on the speedway track itself. As the photographers, TV crews and fans surrounded them as they made their way through the crowd, a young man stepped right in front of Mick Jagger. Fuck you, Mick Jagger, he screamed. I hate you, before punching Jagger in the face. Down went Jagger, as one of the security guards managed to wrestle the kid to the ground. As Jagger got up, he said, don't hurt him, and continued his way through, the sound of the Burrito Brothers singing to love somebody wafting in the background. Just visible towards the back of the crowd, the naked and bleeding fat guy. Flying in on the next helicopter came the Grateful Dead. As Jerry Garcia made his way across the track, he was approached by Michael Shreve of Santana. Shreve told Garcia exactly what had been going on that day. Oh, that's what the story is here? Yeah. Oh, bummer. Really? Yeah. I mean, like, it's scary. Who's doing all the beating? Hells Angels. Hells Angels are doing beating on musicians? Marty got beat up. It doesn't seem right, man. It's, it's, it's really weird, man. It's really weird. Oh, man. There's lots of people. Really? The dead made their way backstage and were horrified at what confronted them. Friends warned them that the angels were out of control. 
There in the midst of it, their friend Bert Cannigan wrapped in bandages. They couldn't believe the stories that Rex Jackson and Marty Balin had also been beaten. This originally was supposed to be a Grateful Dead gig with the Stones coming on as surprise guests. Now, even that had been lost with Mick Jagger and the band now clearly headlining and due to close the event later that evening. A decision was reached, and probably quite easily, the dead would not play. Hopefully the Stones could take to the stage earlier and bring the whole wretched affair to a close before more people got hurt. But there was still one more group scheduled to appear that day. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young touched down by helicopter at Tracy Airport, little more than a dirt runway. With no one there to meet them, they hot-wired a pickup truck that was parked there and with David Crosby at the wheel made their way to the speedway from the rear side of the venue. As he drove over the hill, all he could see was a solid mass of people. So road manager Leo Makota took the wheel and with Crosby and Stills standing on the front bumper yelling out the group's name, they edged their way through the throng. One of the first supergroups, Crosby, Stills and Nash had performed at Woodstock, and were now joined by Neil Young, Graham Stills' former Buffalo Springfield bandmate. Arriving at the backstage area, already acutely aware for themselves that things were definitely not right, they listened to the tale of Marty Balin's pounding at the hands of the Angels, and the Grateful Dead's decision not to appear. The Dead had already left, choosing instead to return to San Francisco and play at the Fillmore West that evening. The relative quiet of the Flying Burrito Brothers set didn't last long as Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young opened their performance with Stills' funky version of Black Queen. Out came the pool cues again as the fights broke out in front of them and on the stage. Pre-road downs followed by Long Time Gone were played as the battles continued to rage. Crosby pleaded with the crowd but to no avail before the short set concluded with Down by the River and a kind of extended instrumental jam. Throughout the performance a Hell's Angel, high, drunk or more likely both, sat on the stage armed with a sharpened cycle spoke. Every time Stephen Still stepped forward to sing, the angel would stab him in the leg. The set lasted no longer than half an hour, and by the end of it Stephen Stills' jeans were soaked as streams of blood poured down his legs. Grabbing guitars and as much equipment as possible, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young ran as fast as they could to the waiting helicopter.
As the afternoon slowly faded towards evening, the temperature began to drop. There would be a long wait before the arrival on stage of the Stones. The audience began to settle down on the ground, huddled together, and as the trouble seemed to have been confined to the front of the stage area, still the majority of the crowd present there that day remained relatively unaware as to the extent of it. Conditions started to wear the crowd down. Inadequate toilet facilities combined with lack of food and water and the dropping temperature combined with rumours circulating that the Grateful Dead would not be appearing all added to the volatile atmosphere. The crowd's edgy mood turned to becoming restless, bored and uncomfortable. People were bunched up together with nowhere to go and nothing to do. At about five o'clock that afternoon, just as the sun was setting, there was a rumble of revving motorcycle engines roaring above the noise of the crowd. The crowd could hear the parade of Harley Davidsons long before they could see them. About a dozen choppers made their way down the hill and through the crowd. At their head rode Oakland Hells Angels chapter president Sonny Barger. Behind him, ranking officers of the Angels, the top brass as it were. Barger led his troops straight to the front of the stage, clearing out the front rows as much as 40 feet from its edge, parking the choppers as a kind of barrier between the stage and the audience. It made some kind of weird sense. No one in their right mind would dare touch an Angel's bike. Stones had always planned to take the stage after sunset. Any thoughts of trying to go on early and calm the tension in the audience had proved impossible as Bill Wyman didn't arrive until just before sunset itself. Whilst the rest of the band waited for Wyman to finally appear, they were told of the various incidents that afternoon firsthand from Michelle Phillips and Graham Parsons. By now, it was over two hours since Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young had left the stage. For most of this tour, the Rolling Stones had arrived late for each gig, heightening the drama of the experience for the audience. But this was one audience that, quite frankly, didn't need any more drama. Sam Cutler continued to make various announcements trying to get people off the stage. Sonny Barger and his lieutenants went backstage having assessed the situation and immediately seeing the danger of the whole setup, declared to Jagger, the rest of the Stones and anyone else that was in earshot. We're keeping this stage. Do you realise if all these people had their minds together, they could crush this thing? The Stones made their way from the trailer to a yellow tent a few feet away, guarded by the Angels, and began to tune up. Hell's Angel Sweet William appeared at the tent, went over to Mick Jagger and said, You better get the fuck out of there before this place blows. You've tuned up enough. Jagger politely told him that they were preparing and that they would go on when they were ready. 
I'm telling you, replied Sweet William, people are going to die out there. Get out there, you've been told. Sam Cutler, still valiantly, desperately, almost defeated, tried to clear the stage. The reason we can't start is the stage is loaded with people, he cried. Nobody moved. Up walked Sonny Barger to the microphone. All right, everybody off the stage, including the Hells Angels. And the stage started to clear. The crowd backstage was still 30 feet deep as the stones squeezed between the people, guitars in hand. Keith Richards eventually made his way to his position and Sam Cutler, realising there'd simply nothing left to say, said... I'd like to introduce to everybody from Britain, the Rolling Stones. The rest of the band finally appeared on the stage, and like a rippling wave the entire seated audience rose to their feet, a churning sea of bodies surging forward, creating wave after wave of people that had nowhere else to go apart from forwards. Forwards towards the Hells Angels and their cordon of precious motorcycles. All right. This was it, the biggest gig in the band's seven year career so far. Nothing they'd witnessed previously, or any concert or gig that had gone before could have prepared them for what they were about to undertake. The gig performed as if it were at the very gates of hell itself. Oh, so pleased to see you all! Jumping Jack Flash. The band let rip, illuminated by 48,000 watts of light projected from behind them by stacks of spotlights lighting up the crowd in front. The only light projected onto the front of the band came from follow spotlights and the reflection from the first few rows of the audience. It created an eerie scene on that postcard sized stage. The Rolling Stones lit up like strange spectres with bright luminescent halos. The lighting gave the band a clear view of the crowd they were playing to, and Jagger did his best not only to entertain, but to reassure. Oh, babies. There's so many of you. Just be cool down the front there, don't push around. Just keep still, <laughs> keep together. Next on the set list was Carol, the Chuck oh, Berry yeah. classic from early in their career, which by now seemed a lifetime away. 
and as Jagger, gyrating and swirling about resplendent in flowing orange and black cape, began to sing the opening lines from Sympathy for the Devil, Sonny Barger suddenly noticed smoke coming from one of the choppers parked right in front of the stage. A member of the audience was kneeling on the seat and was causing a short. Barger screamed out but he wasn't heard. Storming his way through the crowd pursued by several of his cohorts, Barger crashed his way through to the bike, sent the offending audience member flying and put out the fire. Meanwhile, the other angels began to lay into the crowd. The yells and screams were clearly heard above the sound of the band and the whole incident was lit up brightly by the vast banks of spotlights. Other Hell's Angels charged over the stage, gathering at its edge. The band stopped playing, except for Keith Richards, so absorbed in his guitar playing he didn't notice. Hey, hey people, sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, come on now, that means everybody just cool out, will you cool out everybody, I know, I'm here, everybody be cool now, come on. All right, how are we doing over there? All right, can we still make it down the front? Is there anyone there that's hurt, huh? Everyone all right, okay. All right, I think we're a cool, we can go. We always have something very funny happens when we start that number. It was terrifying. The band were just posed, surrounded by a sea of 300,000 people in a situation that was becoming even more uncontrollable by the minute. There was only one thing they could do, and that was retreat behind their music. Back into Sympathy for the Devil, with Keith Richards belting out the opening riff. Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts doing what they did best, keeping the beat tight. And new boy Mick Taylor, who certainly hadn't signed up for this, keeping up with the second guitar. Mick Jagger sang like his very life depended on it, and for six minutes they were on fire.
During the instrumental passage, a huge bearded Hells Angel walked across the stage and whispered into Mick Jagger's ear. Dancing across the stage, Mick could see yet another beating taking place in the crowd, almost within touching distance. Jagger stared, for a moment forgetting where he was before returning to his gyrations and closing the song. There was no applause. Instead, all that could be heard was screams and moaning from the audience. Jagger felt so helpless as he began to berate the crowd. Uh, uh, people, I mean, who's fighting what for? Who's fighting and what for? Why are we fighting? Why are we fighting? We don't want to fight. Come on. Do we want, who wants to fight? And then, in an act of either incredible bravery or intense stupidity, Keith Richards exploded, taken up position by another of the microphones. He pointed to one of the Hell's Angels in the audience. Look, Cat, that guy there, if he doesn't stop it, man. Listen, either those cats call it, man, or we don't play. A Hell's Angel on stage grabbed another microphone. It had now become clear that the preparation for the gig had been so rushed it had resulted in a complete lack of any viable security and an ominous sense that no one was in charge. Not Sam Cutler, not the Hells Angels and certainly not the Rolling Stones. Hells Angels were walking across the stage as if it were theirs, the beatings and the fights were not going to stop and possibly the most frightening aspect of the whole situation for the Rolling Stones leaving the stage now would certainly not be an option. In an effort to chill things out and calm things down, the band went into some easy blues with The Sun Is Shining, followed by Stray Cat Blues. Mick and the boys still edgy, eyes darting between each other, the angels and the crowd. Things settled for the briefest of moments during these two numbers, and some of the crowd even managed to sit back down. Yet still, the odd punch was being thrown and scuffles continued. Yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think that some, there was one good idea came out of that number, which was that I really think the only way that you're going to keep yourselves cool is to sit down. Yeah. Yeah. If you can make it, I think you'll find it's better. So when you're sitting comfortably... The opening bars to Under My Thumb. Mick started to sing, but to no avail as the fighting exploded once more in front of the stage. Yeah. 
Jagger could no longer shout at the crowd. He was beaten, but he knew it would be down to him to try and restore order. All he could do was plead. Sam Cutler pulled Mick Jagger to one side and whispered in his ear. There's one thing, uh, what we need, Sam, we need an ambulance. We need a doctor by that scaffold there. If there's a doctor, can you get to there? Okay, here we're gonna, we're gonna, I don't know what we're doing. When we get to really like the end and we all wanna go absolutely crazy and like jump on each other, then we'll stand up again, you know what I mean? Everyone keep that, sit down, I mean, just keep cool. Let's just relax, let's just get into a groove. Come on, we can get it together. Come on, sit down. The crowd did not sit down. The stones started under my thumb for the second time, little knowing that it would provide the soundtrack to a murder in front of their very eyes. Grace Slick and Paul Kantner of Jefferson Airplane weren't taking any chances. Realising that they might get stranded at Altamont once the Stones had finished their set, they, along with David Freeberg of Quicksilver Messenger Service, jumped on board the helicopter and took off to return to San Francisco. The helicopter pilot circled the crowd, giving his passengers one final view of the scene below. As they looked down, they could see the vast crowd spread out in front of the stage, then in one distinct fluid movement, the crowd spread apart and then joined back together in unison. The crowd rippled and churned as the helicopter continued on its westbound journey, its occupants unaware that they had just witnessed the killing of Meredith Hunter.
Meredith Hunter, known to his friends as Murdoch, had been dating Patty Bredehoff for several months. He was a tall, good-looking, charismatic, trendy young black dude. A would-be kind of tough guy. A bit of a ladies' man who dressed snappily and had a cool way with the words. Patty was an attractive, curvy blonde, 17 years old and a senior at high school. A capable student, by all accounts, did well at her studies. Patty and Meredith had already seen The Temptations live earlier that summer, and Meredith planned to take her to the free Rolling Stones gig. Meredith was the youngest of four children from a very troubled background, spending most of his teenage years in jail. But Paddy got on well with him and things were working out. Patty would recall later then pulling up in Meredith's brown 65 Mustang before the concert began and starting to head on foot towards the venue. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon when Meredith told Patty he had to return to the car as he'd forgotten to get his gun. Patty didn't even know that Meredith owned a gun and watched as he took it from the trunk of his car, tucking the long-barreled 22 automatic into the waistband hidden beneath his coat. When the Rolling Stones took to that tiny stage that December afternoon, Meredith and Patty were fairly close to the front, trapped amongst an army of tightly packed bodies. Meredith was buzzing, loaded on speed, but Patty was completely unaware, caught up in the chaos around her. Meredith had already tried to climb onto the stage, but had immediately been thrown back by the angels. They were pushed and jostled, trapped in the constantly moving sea of people. Patty and Meredith were separated, and Patty soon lost sight of him, elbowed and jolted, finding it difficult to keep her footing. As the stones began to play, the crowd surged forward. Not that there was anywhere for them to go. Some of them climbed onto the speaker boxes and nearby scaffolding, only to be torn down by the Hell's Angels. Meredith worked his way forward. Patty caught sight of him trying to tell people to get down from the speakers. He was grabbed by the hair by one of the angels but managed to shake him loose. He scowled at the angel who just laughed at him before punching him square in the face. Meredith fell back into the crowd pursued by the Hell's Angels. As Meredith scrambled his way back through the crowd, a group of four or five more leapt onto him, pouncing like lions going in for the kill. He managed to get up and began to run back through the crowd to his right towards the scaffold. He was out of breath, exhausted. Stumbling back, he pulled the gun from out of his waistband. Before he could even aim the pistol, his legs buckled under him as he stumbled sideways, the gun in his hand pointing down towards the ground. It was at this point that the crowd parted, as witnessed by Jefferson Airplane in the departing helicopter. The audience scattered. Patty tried to reach for Meredith as people all around began to scream. Only a few moments before, Hell's Angel Al Passaro had left the stage. He'd made his way to the motorcycles at the front of the stage area after one of them had been knocked over. It was from this vantage point that he witnessed Meredith fall from the stage, break free and pull out the gun. 
Without batting an eyelid and reacting purely on instinct and adrenaline, he spun around, reached down his leg and pulled out a hunting knife that he had strapped to his ankle in a leather sheath. And then he spun around, and in one almost graceful movement he leapt through the air, grabbed hold of Meredith's hand as he pulled him around, plunging the knife into Meredith's neck just behind his ear. They both collapsed to the ground, Pissarro stabbing Meredith repeatedly in his back. Ron Sedgley, another angel who had been standing with Pissarro by the bikes, pulled the gun from Meredith's hand. Meredith amazingly managed to stand, staggered and then fell back onto his knees. Another Hells Angel grabbed at his shoulders and kicked him in the head until he fell face first into the dirt. Surprisingly, Meredith managed to blurt out, I wasn't going to shoot you, only to receive the reply, well why did you have a gun? Before the Angel picked up a nearby metal frame that was being used as a trash can and slammed it down on Meredith's prostrate body. And yet, it didn't stop there. The angel continued to kick Meredith in the head and was joined in by more of his buddies who circled round and continued to stomp on him. At one point, the Hell's Angel, who had originally punched Meredith back at the stage what seemed a lifetime ago, was seen standing on Meredith's head. Patty was screaming. Sedgley showed her the gun he'd taken from Meredith and said, don't cry over him, he's not worth it, before shoving her back into the crowd. Pissarro, meanwhile, was aware that he'd managed to stab Meredith five times before he'd broken loose, and watched as he was set upon by the other angels. Pissarro cleaned the knife in the dirt, slid it back into its sheath and walked off. The initial part of the fight was visible from the stage. Towards the end of it, as Meredith headed for the scaffold, he disappeared from view into the shadows. The Rolling Stones were just finishing under my thumb and could see the whole sickening encounter. As the final chord rang through the air, Keith Richards got to a microphone and shouted, We're splitting, you know, if those cats, if you people, we're splitting, man, if those cats don't stop beating everybody up inside. I want them out of the way, man. Michael Lang, one of the organisers of Woodstock, grabbed a microphone. Hey people! Hey people! Come on, let's be cool! Sam Cutler, for what seemed like the thousandth time that day, desperately tried to restore some order. If you move back and sit down, we can continue. Disconcertingly, he also added, we need a doctor under the left-hand scaffold as soon as possible, please.
Famously, the entire event was captured by the Maisel's film crew. Cameraman Eric Saarinen was on stage and could clearly see what was going on in the crowd. Reaching for the zoom button, he zoomed out instead of in, missing the whole thing. But Baird Bryant, who was filming from behind the stage on the roof of the Grateful Dead's equipment van, had the fight in focus and managed to zoom in at the crucial moment. As the Angels began to walk away from Meredith, who incredibly was still just on his feet staggering towards the scaffold, some said to the crowd, leave him, let him die, he's going to die anyway. Meredith collapsed as people gathered round trying in vain to help, screaming for medical assistance. Blood was pouring through his clothes. They ripped open his shirt and tried to stem the flow before eventually grabbing him by the arms and legs and carrying him towards the stage. Meredith Hunter's body was slumped onto the stage just a couple of feet away from Keith Richards. A pack of Hell's Angels rushed forward and tried to push the body back into the crowd before eventually pushing the lifeless figure into the arms of Dr. Robert Hyatt. Hyatt was a first year resident at Public Health Hospital in San Francisco and had barged his way through the crowd after hearing the call for medical assistance. Hyatt carried Meredith's body around the scaffold and backstage to the Red Cross station. From here, he was placed onto a stretcher and driven by a station wagon to the medical tent. He was still alive, but only just, barely breathing with the weakest of pulses. Something had to be done fast. A doctor there present realised that if there were to be any chance of survival, Meredith would have to be airlifted to hospital immediately. Nobody could be found amongst the chaos to accept responsibility for the helicopter, his pilot insisting that he would not leave without authorisation. Eventually, the doctor was told that the helicopter was reserved for the Rolling Stones, leaving him no option but to call for an ambulance. Meredith Hunter was pronounced dead at 6.30pm, halfway through the stone set, still waiting for the ambulance. Meredith's body was moved from the backstage area over to the Speedway office where his wounds were cleaned with hot coffee as there was no water available. At around this time, a report of the stabbing reached the police department at Eden Township. Up to this point, the police had made no arrests throughout the day, helpless at the sheer scale of the bedlam that lay before them from their position on the hill. Within minutes, the police were on the scene, but Meredith, by now, had passed away. On stage, the Stones who'd witnessed the body being dragged across their stage did their best to carry on. And they did so in style blasting into the first public performance of Brown Sugar written only days before. In front of them the beatings continued in the crowd. Brown Sugar was followed by Midnight Rambler and Live With Me before the band rocked into Gimme Shelter.
Never before had the band played more powerfully, their hearts and souls wrapped around every beat, every chord, every note. The words rape and murder, it's just a shot away, being delivered as a reflection of the horror that confronted the band on the stage. Jagger's vocals were as sharp as a razor, Keith Richards and Mick Taylor's guitars gnashing together like gears. Thankfully, the end was almost in sight as the stones ripped into satisfaction. The audience began to brighten up a little as the familiar song punched its way across the crowd. It was at this point that the sound system, at best temperamental all day, decided to give up completely. But with a buzz of static and a pop a moment later, it roared back into life with Honky Tonk Women and the band's final number, Street Fighting Man. The end of the set could not have come too soon. Rolling Stones crammed into the waiting helicopter, overloaded with 17 people, including Graham Parsons and Michelle Phillips, and made their way back to San Francisco. And yet, as the crowd slowly dispersed, more people were set upon by the Hells Angels. And as a final chilling footnote, there were two more deaths that day. Jim McDonald, a 19-year-old surfer who had hitchhiked from Santa Cruz, joined the crowd as they made their way homeward. On a side road, he grabbed a lift in a car with five people already inside, the girl on the front seat cradling a year-old infant. The car slowly made its way towards the highway, but progress was slow, the car inching along at a snail's pace. Deciding to pull over, McDonald's and the others lit a campfire by the side of the road and settled down for the night. As they slept, an acid-crazed maniac who had stolen a 64 Plymouth roared up the hill at 60 miles an hour, sending those on foot scattering for their lives. At the brow of the hill, the car launched into the air. It flew across the road and crashed down onto the campfire that McDonald had built only a few hours earlier. Two of McDonald's fellow passengers, Richard Saylor and Mark Feger, were killed instantly. Candy Sue Johnson, the young mother, was badly injured, but luckily a baby and the other two passengers were unharmed. McDonald luckily survived after being airlifted to hospital, suffering broken ribs, a broken leg and severe head injuries.
followed was a public dissection of what went wrong, headlined by a four-hour radio special broadcast by KSAN the next day, featuring pre-recorded interviews, live guests and phone calls from the audience. It's as fascinating a document as the celebrated Maisel's movie Gimme Shelter. One of the highlights of the show is a telephone interview with Hells Angels spokesman Sonny Barger. I say interview, implying a two-way conversation. What you actually got was Barger loaded up on cocaine, freewheeling his way through his side of the event of the day before. Sweeping away any efforts to interrupt his flow, Barger spoke seemingly without taking a breath for nearly 15 minutes, but nevertheless came across as a rational, balanced and straightforward man. He wasn't angry or belligerent, and just wanted to back up the Hells Angels. It's an incredible piece of radio broadcasting. You know, now I ain't saying anything about no angel hit anybody, you know. Uh, you know, I know some of them hit people, you know, but they moved them people back out of the way of the bike, and uh, we got the fire put out on the bike, and in the process, you know what, some people got hit. And you know what, some of them people, like uh, maybe with them Friday nighters that got that front row, I don't know, but like they didn't want to give up that spot even to put the bike out, to let us put the fire out, and they come back fighting, you know? Yeah. When they come back fighting, they got thumped, you know? And a lot of times there was six or seven angels on one guy, and a lot of times there wasn't in different areas. But then after that happened, we got the fire put out on the bike, Everybody got back up on the stage of the angels and the people moved right back in again and everything was cool. But out of all them people in that front area, which maybe for 25 rows back, you would say, I don't know how many he could even estimate at it, there was three or four people in there that come over to where the bikes were and kicked a couple of bikes over and, uh, you know, broke a couple of mirrors off of a couple of them and just and that well you know what i don't know if you think we pay fifty dollars for them things or steal them or pay a lot for them or what but most people that's got a good harley chopper got a few grand invested in it i can dig it ain't nobody going to kick my motorcycle and they might think because they're in a crowd of three hundred thousand people that they can do it and get away with it but when you're standing there looking at something that's your life and everything you got is invested in that thing and you love that thing better than you love anything in the world and you see a guy kick it, you know who he is. And right. if you have to go through 50 people to get to him, you're gonna get him. And you know what, they got got. And after they got it, then some other people started yelling. And you know what, some of them people was loaded on some drugs that it's just too bad we wasn't loaded on because they come every once in a while, one of them or two of them or three of them would come running off of the hill yelling, hey, you know, and jump on somebody and it wasn't even always jumping on angels. They were jumping on anybody that was in their way, right. the other people there and this and that. But when they jumped on an angel, they got hurt, you know? You know, Sonny? So it went on and on like that. But, you know, like we moved them people to save that bike and then after that, they started trying to destroy our bikes, and we're not going to stand for it, and then that made it personal.
week after Altamont, after questioning over 1,000 people across the state, Alan David Passaro was charged with the first degree murder of Meredith Hunter. He appeared in court several months later pleading self-defence. Despite murder being committed in front of hundreds of people, police could only find one witness. Footage taken that day by the Maisel's film crew clearly showed the gun in Hunter's hand. The jury had no option but to find him not guilty of murder as there was no premeditation involved. The seeds that were planted at Woodstock in August 1969 withered and died at Altamont a few months later. It's described as the darkest day in the history of rock and roll, as the dream of heaven that was Woodstock became the nightmare vision of hell that was Altamont. If you ask those that thought they knew the story of what happened that day at Altamont, some may simply lay the blame at the feet of the Grateful Dead or Jefferson Airplane for suggesting that the Hells Angels be brought on board as security. Others may of course blame the Angels themselves, or even the Rolling Stones or the slipshod and hazardous way that the event was put together. But it's not until you actually see the Maisel's documentary Gimme Shelter and the slow motion footage of Meredith Hunter in his lime green suit rushing madly forward holding a handgun pointing towards the stage, that you realise that rather than becoming the victim that day, Meredith Hunter's name could quite easily have been spoken in the same breath as Mark Chapman, Marvin Gaye Sr or Bertha Franklin. When you consider what occurred that day, it's highly likely that Hunter intended to use the gun on the Hells Angels. And if it hadn't been for Alan Passaro, the angel that stabbed and killed him, could it actually have been possible that Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, or any of the other Rolling Stones could have been killed that day? The freeze frame footage of Hunter's gun outlined clearly against his girlfriend's dress, coupled with Passaro leaping over and stabbing in the neck, created a Zapruder type moment in history. And although some criticise the Maisel's cinematic depiction of Altamont, it remains a fascinating and chilling account of possibly the darkest day in rock history. The stones were playing under my thumb during that moment of horror. It has been mistakenly stated over the years that they were playing Sympathy for the Devil, and looking back, the reason for this legendary misremembrance is possibly all too clear. There was something in the air that day, all the factors that could have been present to create such a hellish scenario align perfectly on the 6th of December 1969. And some say the peace and love generation died that day, and it was orchestrated by the devil himself. Next time, why don't you join me as I tell the story of the year which featured John Glenn, the Cuban Missile Crisis and an escape from Alcatraz. 
with hits from Elvis Presley, Cliff Richard and the Tornadoes. See you next time as I bring you the hits and headlines from 1962. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast or visit the website at rainbowvalley.libsyn.org where you can send us your thoughts and your feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Pause production. Mm-hmm.